0: Alright, so open your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, which is going to be our key text. Uh, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, specifically. Uh, you know, typically we're going through the, uh, the uh, Gospel of John, uh, chapter by chapter, and um, today is going to be more of a topical sermon. Uh, we're going to have Jeremiah 23, uh, 5 and 6 be our main text, but we're going to be kind of all over the place, so um, just be aware of that. Alright, let's read together. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. All right, let us pray. Dear Lord, as we hear from your word today from the book of Jeremiah, We ask that you would help us to hear what you would have to say. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Help us to listen and to obey it. We pray all these things by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I mentioned this week, we're taking a break from our expository series. Jason's going to finish that up next week. And so that's going to be the last chapter of John and we'll be done. So we're going to take a break this week and go through uh, sort of a broader look at Jeremiah the title of this morning's message is jeremiah's gospel and it's taken from the book of jeremiah 23 as mentioned so in a lot of christian circles we're commonly told that there is a vast chasm between law and between gospel we're told that the law of god condemns whereas the gospel saves we're told that the law says do but the gospel says done and some say that the law cannot be good news and that the law cannot therefore be a part of the gospel. We have to be careful when we make statements like these, that we aren't reducing the gospel. Our warnings to avoid works righteousness, which are good, should not cause us to lose what the gospel actually is. So we of course, we know that our eternal salvation from the wrath of God is dependent wholly upon the work of Christ. Let there be no confusion about that. It is He who has purchased us. It is He who sacrificed Himself for us. It is He who took our place and bore the penalty for sin that we incurred and paid the debt that we could not pay. It is His righteousness that we bear, which has been imparted to us as a free gift, a gift that is attained wholly of grace and a faith itself, the faith itself which has been given freely to us by the regenerating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So it is nothing that we do As Jason preached to us a few weeks ago in John chapter 15, during the high priestly prayer, we did not choose Christ, obviously. But to the contrary, he chose us and gave himself for us. And not only are we initially saved, all of grace, we are also on an ongoing basis sanctified, holy of grace. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us and he both redeems us and sanctifies us. All this is true. And all of these glorious truths, which is what they are, need to be understood and we need to feel the full weight of those truths. Uh, these are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They're the, the ABC, the foundation of our salvation. And it's milk, but milk is really good. Like it's wonderful milk, nourishing milk. They are the fundamental truths, the foundational truths that um, the whole of the Christian uh, life is founded upon. Okay. But all of that said, Theologically, how in the world, if we're thinking with our theologian caps on, how in the world can law ever be good news in light of what I just said? How can law ever be part of the gospel? When we read about the gospel and the prophets, does the gospel message include promises that God's law will be established and propagated as the good news that is being announced? Is the gospel promised in the Old Testament the same as the gospel announced in the New Testament? And then practically speaking, having answered those theological questions, how does that help us to understand the times we're in today? How does it affect the gospel that we preach today to others in all of our different contexts? How does it help us to understand how we should direct the entirety of our lives and the entirety of our families' lives to act in light of this gospel? So before we turn again to our key text this morning, um, first of all, what's going on in Jeremiah? Uh, what's the backdrop What's the historical context? What's the redemptive context? What's the prophetic context? Um, You know, since we're just jumping into Jeremiah kind of all of a sudden, (laughs) I think it's important to orient your minds to remember where Jeremiah sits in the midst of the, the simple chronological history of the Bible. And I firmly believe that uh, many people who go to church every week, and maybe some here, and I know this definitely was me not long ago, when opening our Bible to any of the prophetic books, we have a hard time sort of knowing what's going on. That's not an insult to anybody here, but I'm just saying it's, it's something that I think we as a church have a, a, an issue with. The Old Testament as a whole, first of all, but especially with those prophetic books, sometimes you open those books, what is going on here? Maybe you can pull out a few nuggets or you can sort of see the character of God in different places. But if we're not aware of the broader context of the flow of the whole Bible, sometimes it's hard to know what's going on. So, like, imagine if somebody asked you, you know, to explain, like an unbeliever or something, what is this book of Jeremiah? What's going on here? Could we, like, basically explain what's going on? Um, now, obviously, in the Bible, there's very difficult texts. We're not going to understand everything. I certainly don't. Um, but the basics of the Bible and every book, we should basically be able to understand what's going on. So I think that's one way that we can maybe sharpen. Um, and specifically with regard to when we get to the, the prophets, the 17 books of the prophets, or 15 books, there is this fog that surrounds it. And um, we pretty much get what's going on for the first 15 books of the Bible or so, right? So we start with Genesis, and obviously Genesis is about creation, the fall, the promise of redemption that comes afterwards. Then it gets into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And then uh, Joseph goes down to Egypt, uh, Israel is established, and then we had the Exodus from Egypt. So we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and that's the narrative of where God's saving his people out of Egypt with Moses. They receive the law, they disobey, so rather than directly enter the promised land, they have to go wander in the desert for a whole, for, a whole generation, 40 years. A whole generation has to die off before they can enter the promised land of Canaan which they do, as you remember with stories like Joshua and the land of Jericho. They're entering, finally, entering into the land of Canaan. But even once they enter into the land of Canaan, they keep sinning and they keep falling away from God, just sort of like that first generation did. And then after those first number of chronological books, we have books like Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and that's mostly to do with the events surrounding the rise of Saul, David, Solomon, and uh, their sons after them and how they sort of turn, uh, most of them are evil with a few bright spots along the way, but having committed apostasy and have, have, with Israel having fundamentally abandoned the Lord, um, the, the kingdoms get split into two. Uh, the two-tribe house of Judah is the southern kingdom and the 10-tribe house of Israel is the northern kingdom and they both get exiled. First, it was the Northern Kingdom gets exiled off to Assyria by the, uh, by the Assyrians, and then about 150 years later in 586 BC, the Babylonians get exiled off to, to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And then, so we're up, that's where we are, up to the chronological point of, of the, the books of the Bible. I think Ezra and Esther were the last, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then there's like this five-book break of sort of reflective books. They're great. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But these are a little bit of a different style, right? Not, not as much narrative and more sort of reflective. Wonderful books, but not the narrative so much. And then that's where we get to the prophets after Song of Solomon. And they are the 17 books that round out the rest of the entire Old Testament. And these 17 prophetic books are basically a recording of the testimony of the prophets of God but when he sent them to his people during their time in exile, for the most part, in Babylon and Assyria, okay? In all these books, and mostly in Babylon, and in all these books, you'll find prophets calling down God's covenant judgments upon the people for their disobedience. The prophets either, like Jeremiah, they either get run out of town or they get murdered. And um, while they preach judgment upon people for abandoning God's law, abandoning his precepts, um, they also promise restoration that's to come and redemption. It kind of goes along with it. You'll hear one passage for a long time talk about what's all the bad stuff that's going to come upon them, and then you'll hear this promise of restoration, what God's going to do. Um, And and it's always harping back to the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Those original promises. So it's these promises of redemption and restoration that are located in the books of the Old Testament uh, prophet section where we have some of the most clearest and beautiful presentations of the gospel that you're seeing in in the entire Bible. Um, The promise of the good news of the coming Messiah and his kingdom and what he would do. And that brings us to the book of, from where the sermon this morning comes from, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah lived in a period of time just prior to God booting the house of Judah, that southern kingdom, out of the land of Canaan. So they're still there. There There's so much evil going on for so many generations. God was about to have Nebuchadnezzar come and destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, the city, to the ground. And, Abra- and, and Jeremiah was there, in front of the temple, in Jerusalem, talking to the people about what's about to happen. He's actually proclaiming, for the most part, not uh, turn from your ways, because then this can change. He's proclaiming, it's done. You have abandoned the Lord. Judgment is coming. The righteous get out. <laughs> um, and so, that's sort of the, the chronological context. All right, so uh, having understood sort of where we are in the chronology, what's the redemptive contrast uh, context? Because remember, the book of Jeremiah is in the, the broader context of what God is doing redemptively in history, okay? So remember, the, the overall arc of scripture is not just fall, the fall of man, and the uh, redemption of man, it's creation where man gets a mandate, man gets a task, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. If you miss those two on the end, you're going to miss. And your, your gospel is going to be mostly about save your soul, escape from hell. You have to have the whole story, new, uh, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. All right, so God creates a place for man in the garden and a task of dominion for him to multiply, it, fill the earth, subdue it. Uh, to extend the garden throughout the whole earth. That was his task. That's the creational mandate. So what does man do? Man sins and rejects God's rule, and now he's unable to be successful in his task of dominion. And not only that, but he now has the curse of death upon him, right? So he's got two big problems. Number one, he has the curse of death. He's given up uh, the, his, his good standing, under, living under God's rule, and he's tried to become autonomous. And he's become autonomous, and now he has a curse, and he can't fulfill the task for which he was created. So what does God do? Well, he immediately promises, Genesis 3, uh, one who would redeem and restore man from the curse of death and from failure to achieve that which was he, he was created. That is the serpent crusher, uh, the, 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 the one who would come from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And that's the Messiah, the first, what's called the proto Evangelum the first uh, sort of gospel message there. So in Jeremiah, by the time we get there, it's 600 years prior to the arrival of that serpent crusher, right? So that's where we are in redemptive history. Um, Jesus the Messiah was going to come, but it was still quite a long ways off until that happened. And so God's people were in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, and they are about to be expelled, just like who else was expelled? Adam, right? Adam was expelled. Here, here they are um, God's people in God's place. They've rejected God, and now they're going to be expelled again. Um, so we'll talk about later all the different sinful ways in which their rebellion was manifested, uh, the, des- the s- destructive societal effects of that sin, and how the gospel that Jeremiah preached spoke both to the societal injustice that was going on and also to man's eternal predicament needing substitutionary atonement. And a foreign righteousness applied to him. And you see both of those in our key text today. So that's the redemptive context. Okay, so what about the prophetic context? After all, who are these prophets in Scripture? And what is their role? Why is God always operating through prophets? Why does he keep sending a man to tell the nation? Um, What is their role in the context of, of biblical prophecy? Well, in the prophetic sense, there are a lot of similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus. I just want to zoom out here to give you a sense of the dynamic that's going on generally with prophecy. So, both Jeremiah and Jesus were prophets who were despised and rejected by their own hometown. Both Jeremiah and Jesus prophesied from Jerusalem in front of the temple. Different temples, but um, the first and the second temple. They both prophesied about the imminent destruction of the temple and the city and the plundering of all the wealth by a foreign army to the inhabitants for their covenantal unfaithfulness. They both called attention to the plight of the poor and the oppressed and the exploited uh, about laws and practices that were being exacted upon them by the uh, the unrighteous rulers of their day. Um, they both declared God's judgment against the powers that were, um, that were in place and they cried out for the righteous in the city to flee from the coming judgment. Uh, both were made fun of by scoffers who thought that such a destruction that they promised would never happen. Uh, Both of them pointed forward to a new covenant that would be enacted in the midst of judgment upon the unfaithful. In the the case of Jeremiah, that promise was 600 years in the future. In the case of Jesus and his prophetic role, as he prophesied, the new covenant was about to be enacted as he enacted it himself. So incredible similarities between the two. And not only Jeremiah and Jesus, but as you look at other prophets as well, so the relationship between jeremiah and jesus work is similar to the relationship between ezekiel and john's work so i want you to get this because i want you to understand the deliberate significance of the role of the prophets and what they are prophesying about in their geographical context so i'm going to read you a description of the book of ezekiel and a description of of the book of revelation and look at the similarities between the two though they were written 700 years apart so ezekiel is an apocalyptic book of prophecy full of visions and symbolism where the prophet warns exiled Jews living far away from Jerusalem in Babylon about the impending siege, plundering, and destruction of Jerusalem by a foreign invader where Solomon's first temple would be burned to the ground. And that happened in 580 60, uh, BC by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Revelation Description Very similar. An apocalyptic book of prophecy full of visions and symbolism where the prophet warns exiled Jews living far away from Jerusalem in Asia Minor about the impending siege, plundering, and destruction of Jerusalem by a foreign invader where Solomon's second temple would be burned to the ground. Or the second temple would be burned to the ground. And that happened, of course, in 70 AD by the Roman emperor Titus. Okay, So do you see the prophetic continuity here? We see these relationships and these similarities between Old Testament judgment and New Testament judgment. The New Testament is not a fundamentally different book than the Old Testament. The Bible is one cohesive book. Jeremiah was very much a precursor to the greater prophetic work of Christ. See this in Jeremiah 21 leading up to 23 where a key text is. We see Jeremiah prophesying near the the temple in Jerusalem about the coming destruction of the city. If you're following along, it's uh, verse 8 through 10 in chapter 21. And it reads, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord. So this is Jeremiah passing on the Lord's word to the people. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. Right? A siege was coming. Um, But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, who was the people that Nebuchadnezzar was bringing, who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city. It's already done. I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Right? This is echoed again later in chapter 56, uh, verse 6. It says, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for these are days of vengeance, the repayment the Lord is rendering her. So, um, Jesus actually quotes directly, these are days of vengeance in his prophecy in Matthew 20, and actually Luke 21, about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is always quoting back to what these prophets did and saying it's basically the same thing that was going on in their day, except their judgment had come to a head at the time of Christ. Um, There was another uh, similarity, jesus or jeremiah says that the lord has set his face against the people in jerusalem that was in in you know 586 bc in luke if you ever read joel McDermott's book jesus versus jerusalem it very much focuses on how jesus set his face against jerusalem which had become this covenantal babylon and um, meaning again it's already done the judgment is coming you need to get out so it's very similar so, now let's see how Jesus prophesies near the temple in Jerusalem about the coming destruction of the city by a foreign emperor, again, this time the Romans, and warns the people to flee. All right, Luke 21, 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Same things, flee. And let those who are in the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Don't come here. It's not going to go well. Um, and let not those who are... Okay, I read that. And for, the, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. He's directly quoting Jeremiah. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the nations. Okay, so both Ezekiel and John were prophets who lived in exile warning their fellow exiles about what was going on far away in jerusalem and both jeremiah and jesus were prophets who prophesied in jerusalem to people in jerusalem about the impending destruction of jerusalem okay so it's just important to see the prophetic continuity there so now that we've set the, the chronological context the redemptive context the prophetic context of jeremiah what was his message what was jeremiah's gospel and that's the title of the sermon today the gospel that jeremiah preached how are we do it for 10. Well, Jeremiah, his gospel is most succinctly summed up in two different places in Jeremiah. The first is our key text. It's Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. And the other place, and this is the one you'll hear more often, is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's this famous prophecy of the new covenant that's going to, be, that's going to come out. And that's, that's a great promise. Um, and, that's, and that's wonderful. It's usually what gets most of the focus when we talk about the gospel as presented in Jeremiah. But I submit to you that Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6 is just as central a gospel presentation, if not more. Je- uh, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6 is repeated almost word for word again in Jeremiah thirty three fourteen 14 through 16. This is a highlighted verse. Jeremiah wants to make sure, God wants to make sure through Jeremiah, that this is the emphasis. It's a hugely important prophecy. And again, I believe it's the capstone of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Alright, so let's look at this verse again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So first of all, when God declares through Jeremiah that God will raise up for David a righteous branch, He's making reference to God's earlier promises to establish one of David's descendants. Jesus is often referred to as the son of David, right? And that he would give this king an everlasting kingdom. Maybe some people thought that was gonna be Solomon. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, the son of God would come and build what God's a house for my name, it was, it was promised to be called. And that's of course us, the temple, the true temple, right? Um, And you can find this this promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you want to look there. Um, And it's reaffirmed all the Bible, in Hebrews and elsewhere. And so what is the good news of this righteous son of David? Well, that's the next next sentence. He, the son of David, shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's the good news that he's trying to emphasize, right? It says in his days, this Messiah days, right? His kingdom's going to be established judah will be saved and israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the lord is our righteousness does that sound like good news to you that sounds like good news to me we've had ruler after ruler you know the long train of kings that are following david and solomon who despise god's law and who reject god's justice even the judges before them king after king who would depart from god's ways and now we get to god himself yahweh to reign on the throne himself, to save his people by giving his righteous record to them. So not only do we get a king who executes justice, the king, oh by the way, is God and he's perfect and he's the one who gives us his righteousness. So do you see the harmony between the execution of God's justice and the perfect righteousness that we give? It's a double whammy, the gospel. We We get justice, temporally, not right away, not all at once, which was the disciples mistake. We'll get to that in a minute. But we also get God's righteousness imputed to us. So when we're talking to the world about the gospel, it not only has meaning for them temporally or, or eternally with saving their soul, it also has relevance to this world. All right. So, um, I, just to break it down further, if I, I would give you an example. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is the ultimate good news. Like there's lots of good news that we get in our lives. If, if you, uh, you know, if you win a million dollars in the lottery, oh, good news, right? But it's not the ultimate good news. This is the ultimate good news, way more important than that. But for us to realize what good news is, there has to be a pretty messed up situation going on for us to realize it, for the gospel, for the good news to fix that problem. We have to be aware of what that problem was. So if I owe the bank a million dollars and the bank calls me up and says, guess what, your, your debt is canceled, you owe nothing. And I, I was really worried about that million dollars that I owed, man, that's really good news, right? I'm really amped about that. But if somebody doesn't know that they owe something, like if somebody says, uh, I'm gonna cancel your debt of a million dollars. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't owe anyone a million dollars. Uh, that's not that meaningful to me, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make as much of a difference. Uh, Paul Washer puts this uh, in a good way when he's talking about individual salvation. He's talking about, um, or he says that if I jingle these keys in front of you and jingle, 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 that sound, it doesn't mean anything to you. Right? It's like, what are you doing? Why, Why are you doing that? But if you've been in jail for the past 20 years and you've given up all hope of getting out and you receive word that you're to be released after 20 years, and then you hear the noise of the jailer's keys jingling down the hall as he's coming to release you. That sound would bring you tremendous joy. Why? Because you're aware of what you're being saved from. Understanding that bad news is, is what makes the good news meaningful. And so what was Israel saved from? Their promised this good news, a king to come, right, execute righteous injustice. What was going on? To see that, we have to go back to the preceding chapters. Why is it good news that the Messiah would bring about justice in the land? What was going on? Well, broadly speaking, the people of God had forsook the Lord, their God, and instead made idols for themselves. In Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, the prophet, speaking through the Spirit, says, On behalf of God, Be appalled, O O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's talking about idolatry. That's talking about abandoning, finding satisfaction in Christ And finding it in all manner of other things autonomously apart from Christ, those broken cisterns. So we can ask ourselves, what are those broken cisterns in our life? And how did this uh, idolatry manifest itself in society in Jeremiah's day? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7 and 5 following. Quote, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. This is earlier in the book of Jeremiah, years before God had finally served his, set his face against it. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after idols, idols, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So God sees all. He knows the inclination of the evil of men's hearts, no matter what they put out there. And God saw in those days that the inclination of their hearts was evil and that it had become this temple that they all were, were trumpeting, had become a den of robbers, den of thieves. Does that ring any bells? What, G, what did Jesus say about the temple in his day? Same thing. So we have all, this kinds of, all these kinds of wickedness righteousness is not being executed in the land by the rulers. The, the foreigners are being not welcomed as they were commanded to. The, the stranger and the alien was commanded to be welcomed. They were not being so. The, the uh, rulers of the day were oppressing the people. Um, we'll get into some more examples. Uh, and going forward to chapter 1 in Jeremiah, it reads, And to the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, Thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. God hates those who do not respect property rights. God hates that evil. Okay, And he partially fomented justice against um, Israel for not respecting his law in that regard chapter 22 Thus says the lord go down to the house of the king of judah and speak there this word and say hear the word of the lord o king of judah who sits on the throne of david you and your servants and your people who enter these gates thus says the lord do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien the fatherless and the widow nor shed innocent blood in this place god cares for those who are oppressed oppressed in society. And he, does, he hates it when rulers are tyrannical towards them. And by the way, the absence of justice in the land and the absence of rulers who would execute justice was not a woe limited to the prophet Jeremiah. It's all over the prophets. If you go to Amos, here's another example, Amos 5. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, and you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. In fact, the people in, the, in, the, in those days were saying, Maranatha, have you ever heard that one before? They were saying, come quickly, Lord, come establish your kingdom. God's like, no, you don't want to say that because it's not going to go well for you because you're going to be judged. <laughs> Come quickly, Lord Jesus is good for the righteous. <laughs> All right? Or in Amos 8, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over? This is a celebration they had, the festival. And when, when uh, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may take the epa, small, and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances. They were diluting the money supply they were swindling people, and that we may buy the poor for silver, instead of gold, and the need for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So, um, you know, in our day today, uh, the government is doing this to the poor right now. One of the the biggest blights on the poor that is very invisible, and they know this, is inflation. And by diluting the money supply, by diluting savings through their their multiplication of the money supply, they are making goods and services more expensive. And that's a, that's a tax, it's not, you don't see it on your IRS form. That is a tax that hurts the poor among us the most. When you go to buy the groceries, when you go to pay your rent, um, inflation eats away uh, at, at uh, property and um, it's regressive. So uh, we'll get into more examples today, but The same examples as what I just said in in Amos and elsewhere. They can be multiplied. They're in Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the rest of the prophetic books. The lack of justice that pervaded every crevice in society in Israel leading up to their exile, it was a foul stench to God. And it was a constant scourge to those who were being oppressed by it. And so, remember how I said we got to understand the bad before we can appreciate the good, right? It was bad. Um, The promise of justice. If you were one of those people being oppressed in those days, how would that good news have, have resonated with you when you heard it? The promise of justice and the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom was good news, not only because the sinful lacked a substitute for eternity, which we all need, but because the oppressed lacked a protector in the here and now. And if they didn't get it then, they knew a kingdom would be established where justice would reign one day. So some people say, well, you know, law can't be good news. Well, tell that to people who were freed from slavery, right? Law can definitely be good news. Someone better tell those freed slaves that law isn't good news, right? Or one day in the future when abortion is abolished and, you know, those babies are allowed to live, someone better tell those babies who would have otherwise been slaughtered, you know, um, the law isn't good news. Well, uh, they weren't allowed to be murdered. I'd say that's good news. And Paul, Paul is very clear in Romans When speaking about the law, in terms of the law being like a prosecuting attorney, um, those who are enslaved in a futile cycle of trying to earn righteousness, trying to earn your salvation through your own works, that's a futile cycle. And your relationship with the law, if that's what you think, if that's what you're after for, it's only going to be negative. It's only gonna be entirely antagonistic. Um, In that case, the law is only bad news. Anybody here trying to earn heaven, earn salvation? Um, The law is very bad news because you're going to fail. We all have failed and we're going to keep failing, right? And so um, in that sense, if you're trying to do a works righteousness program, law is bad news. Um, Now that said, the Bible talks about the law in many different ways. That's not the only way the Bible talks about the law. Check out Psalm 119 and look at David's relationship with the law. He's literally, it says, obsessed with the law and he's not enslaved by it one bit, right? And why is that? He's trusting in his substitute for his righteousness and enjoying the law as a gift to be thankful for. A law that provides him, not with enslavement, but with freedom, the law of liberty. So, think, think about this again. If you lived under a king who enforced evil laws who oppressed you at every, at every turn, would you be relieved to hear the announcement of a righteous and a good king who would judge wisely, establish justice and righteousness, Would that be good news to you? A good king with good laws? And I said, it should be no wonder why Jesus spent so much time with his disciples explaining the slow and progressive growth of the kingdom, right? The mustard seed, the leaven that works its way through the lump. Um, They weren't wrong, the disciples weren't, to believe that the Messiah's arrival meant that tyrant kings and rulers would be overthrown and that oppressive decrees would be overturned. They weren't dichotomizing law and gospel. That wasn't their mistake. They had a mistake. It wasn't their mistake. Um, from the prophets, from Jeremiah, they all read Jeremiah. They knew that the propagation of the Messiah's kingdom meant good law, and it was part of the good news. Whatever the disciples' problem in understanding what was going on in their day prior to Pentecost, it wasn't their belief that the Messiah's kingdom would, be about, um, would bring about righteous law upon the earth. They were not wrong about that. Their problems arose because they thought when the Messiah first appeared, there would be an overnight change to fix their little situation in in Palestine and in Jerusalem, right? Acts 1-7. That's like, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought this was going to be an overnight job when it was really about a massive intergenerational project where individuals and families would be built to disciple the nations and bring the law and reign of Christ to the coastlands. It was going to take some time. The mystery of the gospel was that this kingdom would be brought about through the revelation of Christ to all nations, right? That, that there, it would start with Israel, but then and it would start with those 12 disciples, but it would quickly branch out and, and the reunification of the 10 tribe house of Israel that we talked about, the two tribe house of Judah, the reunification of those, of those two tribes, the true remnant of those would bring about the salvation of all nations because in the exile, all of those people that were sent out had spread out to the entire world that's how the gospel was able to be spread into every nation under heaven in the first century within 40 years the gospel went into every nation under heaven it says it tells us in scripture and so that's because there were exiles of pockets of of jews and israelites living all around that that received the the message and then spread it to the to the nations and so us us non-israelites are able to be brought in praise god through that plan okay so um, the disciples um also, maybe didn't get that it, it wouldn't be spread by the sword, or at least sometimes they got it. Sometimes they kind of seemed to not get it. Peter cutting off the ear, as we uh, heard about a couple weeks ago. Um, it wasn't gonna come about by the sword. It was gonna be coming, coming about by the redemption of all nations through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, through changing individual hearts from the inside out. Hearts changed, actions changed, laws obeyed, mass repentance. The disciples knew that Christ was the Messiah, but prior to pentecost their problem was that their timeline was too expedited their scope of the mission was too small and their methods were unspiritual part of the reason for the mistake was it was a mystery yet to be revealed in christ Um, part of it was that they didn't know their scriptures well enough and needed to be reminded some people understood these things not everybody did and part of it was that the holy spirit had not yet been outpoured at as it was as the holy spirit was at at pentecost and as was the promise um, of the prophets So the issue for Christians isn't that we're making Christ's kingdom too much about what happens on the earth in history. That is not our problem. Um, We shouldn't look to these um, disciples' uh, stumblings around and and, and confusion uh, as as reason that we should be like them and say, you know, this world is not my home and just be pietists, right? Um, It's that we need to be on God's timeline, not our timeline. Uh, It's that we need to be evangelistic, not revolutionary with the sword, right? Uh, We need to rely on the Holy Spirit and not on our own strength and not our own um, means. And we should seek to be patient, humble, outward focusing. Uh, the gospel is good news to uh, captives of sin because the atoning work of Christ and it's good news to the oppressed is, um, happens because the promise of the manifestation of the kingdom of Christ on earth has laws that are so just and so right. So when we're making disciples, whether that's of our own children, At our work or or on the street or whatever sphere of influence that we have we must keep in mind that the gospel is good news to captives of sin and captives who are suffering at the hands of tyrants and those who suffer at the hands of those who will not execute justice it's good news for two reasons one it's good news because the gospel changes hearts societies begin to change and tyranny around the world begins to lessen century Uh, over century, millennia over millennia. We've seen in history how the propagation of Christianity has certainly lessened many instances of tyranny throughout the ages. That's happened. Um, And in places where tyranny continues, it's good news because it allows us to suffer under persecution and tyranny, knowing that no evil deed will be unpunished and that vengeance is the Lord's, right? So that's more of our situation, right? We, We don't see abortion changing in the next five years, right? We're... We don't see a lot of the, the, the theft and the confiscation. This is one in, in one of the nations that had the most gospel light, right? So how much will our condemnation be? Um, but we can know that God does not let any deed go unpunished. And that allows us to to have peace, even in the midst of, of terrible atrocity. All right? The the fact that christ has sat down at the right hand of the father with all rule and all authority is very good news it's good news to those who can't buy groceries as we mentioned because decade after decade the government has been devaluing its own currency erasing the savings of millions and making goods more expensive it's good news to the foreigner and the immigrant and the stranger who wants to make a better life for themselves and their family but it's being harassed and turned away rather than welcomed as we are to. it's good news to the business owner and the laborer who is having their property unjustly plundered or their freedom to conduct business unduly regulated. It's good news to uh, the man or woman sitting in a locked cage for conducting an activity which God has not given the magistrate authority to regulate. It's good for the families of those people sitting in prison unjustly who don't have a dad or don't have a mom or have a, a broken family or divorce because of that. Now it's true that even though the gospel means the execution of justice gets propagated more and more throughout the earth, For those who benefit from its effects but do not confess Christ, they will experience those benefits only as temporary crumbs under the table, momentarily, a momentary respite from the eternity in hell that they face. It's a spillover effect. We have to understand this about God's grace. God's grace is for his people. It sometimes spills over to the unrighteous um, and those who reject Christ. The the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? Um, But God, while God may at times extend gifts to people who reject Him, they're always temporary and they don't mean that He set His covenantal favor upon them. In fact, those gifts and the lack of thankfulness and lack of giving God the credit will be more to their judgment. So, none of what I preach today should give you the idea that we minimize the, the need for regeneration in our gospel. That is a wonderful aspect of the gospel that we were redeemed for a purpose. As it says in Ephesians, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Or as it says in Titus, Christ gave himself to purify a people who would be zealous for good works. What I'm saying is that the gospel that Jeremiah preached was one that included good news, the good news of Christ extending his righteousness to us, along with extending to the world a kingdom which is marked by justice according to God's law. So when we hear the simple message of, Christ came to save sinners. That's the gospel, right? Well, we shouldn't forget that the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Joseph, was his last name wasn't Joseph Christ, right? Christ is a title and it is bestowed upon Christ because he is the Messiah, he is the king. And we have to remember the king has a kingdom, the kingdom has a law, and so when we think Christ came to save sinners, amen, that's the gospel. Just don't forget what Christ actually means, right? Um, the harmony of, of what He came to do and who He is and the nature of His kingdom is a beautiful thing to behold. So, remember, the coastlands are waiting for the good news of Christ's atonement and for the manifestation of His law rule on the earth. And let's work to that end um, in, in, patience, uh, in patience, knowing that Christ is sovereign over all things. All right? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning. Um, we pray that we would uh, listen to your word and, and find out how we should best apply that to our individual situation, our individual families. Um, God, help us to hear and obey your word uh, this week. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.